Thanks for tuning in. I'm Scott Walter. And I'm Michael Watson. This week, we look at left-wing activist groups like Media Matters and Center for Media and Democracy that launch swarming attacks against conservative pundits and organizations. We're happy to have a survivor of one such attack, Bill Meyerling of the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC, who will join us for this episode. This is the Influence Watch podcast. Last week, The Atlantic, a magazine that purports to be, quote, of no party or clique, fired its most recent hire, firebrand dissident conservative writer Kevin Williamson, formerly of National Review. The firing came amid savage and well-organized attacks by Media Matters for America, a group with a history of taking conservatives out of context and hounding their advertisers and employers. The goal? Silence conservatives who aren't either house-trained, almost liberals, or far-right radicals who are so extreme they're doomed to fail and be pushed out of the national conversation. Joining us today is a man who knows a thing or two about enduring a left-wing swarm attack with more pleasing results. We're talking with Bill Meyerling, Vice President of External Relations of the most important conservative group you might never have heard of, the American Legislative Exchange Council. Over the past several years, a number of left-wing activist groups, including Center for Media and Democracy, Color of Change, and Common Cause, have attacked ALEC for having the gall to be effective advocates for conservative state and local policies. Bill, can you tell us a bit about yourself and ALEC's work? Sure. Uh, Thank you very much, Scott, and thank you, Mike, for having me on your show today. And first, I want to start off by also thanking the groups that attacked ALEC as an organization. They made us stronger and better. They made us more focused, and they gave us more opportunity to tell our story, including the story that I'm here sharing with you today. Uh, So thanks to all. Uh, Indeed, I've been with ALEC for about five years. Before joining the American Legislative Exchange Council, I represented some of the largest uh, Fortune 500 companies and corporate brands and corporate reputation uh, plans and activities uh, across the spectrum. Uh, A little bit about the American Legislative Exchange Council. Uh, ALEC is 45 years old this year, founded in 1973 around limited government, free markets, and federalism. ALEC brings legislators, uh, members of the business community, the think tank community, and citizen advocacy groups together to discuss ideas, to exchange ideas, and to create better, more workable policy. Well, thanks. Uh, Now, Mike, let's turn to you. Tell us a little bit about uh, what's going on with the Atlantic Magazine, Media Matters for America, and Kevin Williamson. So the the Atlantic, which although it again purports to be of no party or clique, ha ha ha, uh, brought on Kevin Williamson, who is a writer for was a writer for National Review, uh, firebrand, uh, you know, very very staunch uh, conservative writer, uh, but a dissident from the Republican Party. Uh, and uh, he's best known probably for a number of pieces that he wrote uh, concerning poverty in America, especially poverty in rural white America. Um, he wrote a very long piece for National Review about uh, the troubles in Appalachia. Uh, he's also known for opposing the uh, Trump administration. Uh, that's his dis- dissent from the Republican Party. Uh, and also a staunch belief in uh, in the pro-life cause, uh, which and may he has a personal reason, for which that, may right? yeah, which may have something to do with the fact that he was born and given up for adoption in rural Texas shortly before the decision came up came down in Roe v. Wade that le- that uh, mandated legalized abortion across the nation. 
Yes, but I just throw in, you know, Christopher Hitchens, most people don't realize, but Christopher Hitchens uh, was a pro-lifer, uh, though he wasn't particularly courageous about it. In fact, he wasn't as courageous as Mother Teresa, whom he attacked all the time. But anyway, uh, his mother, I believe, aborted the child before him and the child after him, um, which may have something to do with his his views. But so that's that's Williamson. Well, let's turn then to The Atlantic, the magazine that hired him for, what was it? Six uh, days. Uh, so it was more than 72 hours. Okay, so, so maybe, maybe uh, 100 yeah, or yeah, two so hours. He was, he, was, he was a columnist for The Atlantic for six days. Um, it was founded uh, in the last century. It's 160 years old. Uh, News and Culture magazine. The editor is a gentleman by the name of Jeffrey Goldberg. And the owner is a former Beltway bandit turned publishing magnate, a gentleman by the name of David Bradley. Um, and Goldberg hired Williamson off from the National Review to join uh, the magazine's handful of non-Democrat, non-explicitly liberal opinion contributors. Now, some of those non-liberal opinion contributors include David Frum, who I'm not sure if he's expressed a conservative opinion other than immigration restrictionism in the past decade and a half, uh, and Connor Friedersdorf, who is a civil libertarian. Yep. Now, The Atlantic has had, to be fair, if, if I'm remembering correctly, they've had Ross Douthout uh, for a while and uh, Andy Sullivan also. Ro yeah, Ross, Ross Douthat, now of The New York Times, uh, got, I believe, his national start there. Uh, and I do believe they had Andrew Sullivan for, for yeah. a while, yeah. That would have been long before the, the current publisher and, and editor, I think. But, uh, but in any event, so that's Williamson. Now, Media Matters for America. Tell us about that. So Media Matters for America is a left-wing pressure group that's been around since the early 2000s that basically exists for the purpose of attacking and pressuring right-leaning media and right-leaning commentators and anyone who would dare employ a right-leaning commentator. Uh, it was founded and I believe is still run by controversial Clinton family operative David Brock. Uh, and it's funded uh, in large part by the Democracy Alliance of Liberal Donors, the most prominent of whom is George Soros. Yep, and I, I will break in for just a second to remind folks on Democracy Alliance. First, if you go to influencewatch.org, you can find lots more about Media Matters and Democracy Alliance and David Brock. But the, the, the quick uh, 30 seconds on Democracy Alliance is it is a donor cabal originally founded by George Soros and Peter Lewis of Progressive Insurance and it was funded because they had both uh, between them, they put in tens of millions of dollars into the 2004 presidential campaign to the Democratic Party and the and the, the and party apparatus, uh, expecting uh, John Kerry to beat George W. Bush. Uh, that failed, and they were very bitter about that. And the idea was to that uh, left-wing donors like them needed to fund the left-wing infrastructure outside the party. Um, and so the way the Democracy Alliance works is you pony up your dues of around 30000 a year to be a member, or they say partner, and then you promise that you'll put at least $200,000 a year into that left-wing infrastructure, uh, into about a couple of dozen groups that they think are the most powerful, effective, uh, weaponized parts of the left, and Media Matters is prominent among them. Yeah, so then what Media Matters then did uh, and, what they, and what they do is they compile dossiers on everything that the conservative pundit of the hour uh, has ever said. So, you know, if one of us ever got a ever got a, a, a contributorship with CBS, Media Matters would look through this podcast for anything that we would we would have said. Um, and then 
they clip it, snip it, take it out of context, take it out of the uh, out of the the context of whatever argument was being made, uh, and hold it up as this is your sincere belief that's so radical that you should be kicked out of polite society. And then they sit on it until uh, any conservative uh, who wants to step out of the conservative media. Uh, would be picked up by a media outlet that might have a mixed or liberal audience. Yep. Or the conservative says something that's particularly controversial, and then the file drawer of material that they have stored up for you gets dropped on you. Okay, well, the uh, so we've got Media Matters, we've got Williamson. Uh, this was a perfect storm. How did that go down? Right. So what Media Matters, so a couple months ago, uh, Goldberg announces that he's hiring a new slate of contributors, one of whom is Kevin Williamson. So that is the alarm call to Media Matters to go dig through everything he's ever said in his life. And what they found was a statement that he made on Twitter and also on a podcast that he believed, and he stated this fairly clumsily, that he believed that abortion is murder and in a hypothetical legal regime should be treated as such, uh, including if we are going to retain the death penalty— uh, Williamson himself is skeptical that we should retain the death penalty, that the death penalty should be available. Uh, after Media Matters had chopped and had taken this to the chop shop, shopped it to the Guardian, uh, the left-wing British newspaper that has come now come to America, uh, then it somehow metastasized into the claim that Williamson wanted to lynch a quarter of American womanhood. Um, and this, of course, then precipitated the swarm attacks from Media Matters, Ultraviolet, uh, uh, Guardian commentators, the whole left-wing infrastructure. Uh, and then immediately after the attack started, Goldberg got wobbly. Uh, he pushed out, he put out a statement in which he said that he believed everyone was entitled to second chances, uh, basically blood in the water for this kind of attack. Uh, and then after allegedly... Uh, Williamson refused to recant, uh, which is exactly what you would have expected from someone of Williamson's record. Uh, Goldberg canned him. Yeah. Now he is certainly Williamson is just the la uh, the latest in a long line of people who've had these kinds of swarms. Uh, Rush Limbaugh was one of the one of the earlier ones. Uh, Sean Hannity more recently. Uh, basically, anybody with a, anybody who either achieves or suddenly has dropped upon them a nice audience. Uh, who's on the conservative side uh, can expect this. So, uh, Bill, certainly Alec uh, is familiar with the name Ultraviolet and uh, Common Cause, Color of Change, Center for Media Democracy, and the rest. Uh, tell us a bit about what it's like to be at the center of one of these swarms. Well, first, if I may back up just a little bit, something to think about in the context of swarm attacks is the lowest hanging fruit or the most suitable potential adversary or target in these cases is a consumer-facing brand. Uh, whether that be a publication uh, like The Atlantic, a journalist that has a public face and narrative, or a company that sells things to people. Uh, each of these have an angle or a flank that is re that remains uncovered because it's incredibly important for those companies, brands, or individuals to interface with everyday moms and dads. 
this opens any organization, ALEC, for instance, whose members are uh, some of the most important companies in the world, uh, and whose members are also some of the uh, most important and valuable legislators across the United States, uh, or to someone like Kevin Williamson, who uh, is a brand in and of himself. Uh, these represent uh, real challenges to uh, pursuing your goals, uh, pursuing your challenges. So what we've seen over the past several years uh, with these these groups on the progressive left is a, um, a focus on what I like to call name, shame, and defame campaigns, where it might not necessarily be about the basis of your argument, uh, Mike, to what you were saying, it was about deconstructing the argument. Right, it's about, taking, about taking, taking the one the one clip where you threw out a hypothetical mm -hmm. that then, after Media Matters is done with it, becomes your sincere belief that you don't actually hold. Correct. Uh, that's exactly right. So that's one angle. Um, the other is uh, specialization on the progressive left side, where each individual organization working in concert through the Democracy Alliance is pursuing a specific angle or avenue. Uh, in the case of ALEC, Common Cause focused mostly on corporate interests. They would focus on companies and attack companies based on their membership in ALEC. The Center for Media and Democracy would do the same thing, but with legislators. Uh, now, how that manifests for each, Color of Change would institute uh, online pressure campaigns and Twitter storms uh, that were in incredibly creative. So good on them for be for creativity. On the flip side of it, the Center for Media and Democracy would uh, issue open records requests against legislators. In fact, uh, in an online message forum, the head, the then head of the uh, Center for Media and Democracy, Lisa Graves, bragged on Influencer Salon that in 2014, she had issued more than 2,500 open records requests against legislators. Yeah, or FOIA is the, is the yeah. more typical, that's the federal law. Correct. Yeah. So what's interesting about that is this is what I call the compliance feedback loop. And you can see it manifest in advertising and public areas as well. But for our purposes right now, the compliant, compliance feedback loop is as follows. Alec posts everything it does, all work product, including emails to its legislators online. Legislators receive open records requests for said information that's already publicly available. Statutorily, legislators in many states must comply with all open records or FOIA requests. That's good government. Legislators should be accountable to the people and should share that information when requested. The challenge is when that issue is weaponized, when that approach is weaponized. The information is already publicly available. You don't need someone to comply and give it to you. You simply need to go to alec.org. But instead, we've delivered a, a request to a legislator that requires them to fulfill it and keeps them from either serving their constituents or legislating. Yep. So that's just uh, that's just one of the uh, of the many tactics. Um, you talked a bit about the, uh, the they have a division of labor on the left for these things. So uh, common cause businesses, Center for Media and Democracy, legislators, um, but they also work uh, through uh, various identity groups as well. Mm -hmm. And so if if I am a corporate executive whose company is a member of Alec, what can I expect? Absolutely right. And this this organization I'm about to speak of has uh, influenced or been engaged in corporate pressure campaigns over the past five or so years uh, using single issue splinter groups. Uh, now, that said, there are plenty of single issue groups the world over. This is not anything out of the ordinary. The coordination and focus, however, is. 
based in California, there's a for-profit, non-profit, C3 and C4 called the Citizen Engagement Lab. They work as a consulting service for a variety of single-issue groups, among them Color of Change that focuses on African-American issues, uh, Presente.org that focuses on dreamers and Latinos, 18 Million Rising, that's the Asian-American group, uh, Ultraviolet, that's gender and marriage equality. Uh, the list goes on and on and on and on to you know 30 plus groups, each focused on one single specific issue. The challenge is the swarm. If you have a, a potential brand liability as a, as a for-profit or publicly traded company, what you don't want is to be flanked, or in this case, outflanked by a variety of different aggressors. Uh, now, and, the, and, and the existence of all these individual uh, Identi uh, single identity organizations makes it look like there's a lot of people behind this sort of attack. And if you're a Fortune 500 company, that sounds like a lot of customers who are angry. Correct. And what's important to recognize in this context, and what we oftentimes counsel folks the nation over, is more often than not, these are not your clients or these are not your constituents. In many cases, these are not even real. Yes, letterhead groups is the is the term of art in Washington D.C. You have an, a letterhead. You have impressive public figures on that letterhead as advisor advisory councils or this or that or what have you, um, and. Uh, but in fact, the actual number of constituents that you speak for is very small. And as you say, it's all, uh, it's a concerted campaign by the master organizers at the top with very, very little grassroots support. Now, let me, let me jump in here for a moment too, because we're talking a lot about organizations that are attacking in a name, shame, and defame approach. I'd like to put out here, submit for the record, that all people in this country deserve a right to espouse their perspectives. That's the point of the First Amendment, and that's the point of rigorous debate. The challenge herein is that many of these organizations are trying to win the debate by silencing debate, not by having it. And that's destructive for the future of America. Yeah, and that, yeah. well, then the Kevin Williamson yeah, debate right, example. Right, right, and, and this is, and this is how, how it works, that you know, Media Matters comes after a potentially effective conservative advocate as a, as a pundit, and kicks him off a kicks him off a platform where he would have an audience potentially outside of already converted conservatives. Yes, the yeah, not having the not having access to the general public is critical <laughs> for, for for what they're trying to do. And I, I will throw out that some years back, I remember C-SPAN did an interesting poll where uh, I'm sure they were wanted to know more about people who watched C-SPAN, and they discovered a subgroup of people who had not been political. I, beforehand, um, but somehow in clicking through the channels on the tube, stumbled on C-SPAN, found it interesting to watch, you know, this is years ago, back when it was mostly just the Senate and House chambers of the U.S. Congress. Uh, and and somehow that grabbed people and they spent some time doing it. And what was amusing is after, oh, six or eight months of watching a lot of just C-SPAN floor debates, which I have to say, I do not think is the highest intellectual level of conservative and liberal uh, debate. Nonetheless, uh, what they found was that there was this big push of those formerly apolitical people became conservatives. And, and I, I would say that you, you see that too in, uh, I'm old enough to remember the Ross Perot campaign. Ross Perot tended to draw into his uh, presidential campaign people who had not previously been interested in politics. And, but when they started paying more attention and, and getting both sides, because that was the point about C-SPAN, it was just unfiltered both sides, um, the conservative arguments 
won over lots of people. Uh, and uh, you see this in academe, too. I know a, a professor who had a left-wing colleague who uh, discovered that when he asked his students, it was supposed to be a course about politics, so he asked his students about, can you give to the both sides, what are the two arguments on the pro-life issue, actually, it was, uh, in this case. And none of the students, of course, could give the pro-life argument. And so the left-wing professor felt obliged to say it, and a girl in the front row started crying because she said, I have no idea how to respond to that. She never heard it. Never, there never, there have been the actual debate. So, yes, the shutting down debate is the worst thing, the worst thing about these attacks. It's not that Kevin Williamson lost a job. He'll, I'm sure, find another job. It's that we're silencing more and more people and not having these it's, it's debates. An, it's an attempt to drive especially effective non-left-wing advocates out of the space because the, le because the left could be could lose if effective not left-wing advocates are in the space. That's right. The idea is to silence debate rather than have it. Uh, you know, Alec, uh, among many other programs, runs uh, Center to Protect Free Speech, uh, led by director Shelby Emmett, who is uh, a fan of saying, if you disagree with the speech, that is the number one indicator that it should be protected. Yes. The, uh, or the... Um, uh, a favorite Orwell quotation of mine is, you know, journalism is printing what someone else does not want published and everything else is public relations. Exactly right. So the Atlantic does not exist to be public <laughs> relations for one side of the debate. It exists to have vigorous, good debate. And, and by the way, let's, in the case of Williamson, I disagree with lots of things Williamson said, not just on, on abortion, on abortion and elsewhere. And, but, and many of his defenders, of course, said the same thing. But the idea that an articulate thoughtful person like Ken Williamson uh, is beyond the pale and should just, you know, be silenced and sent off to some little small town somewhere is uh, un-American, you might even say. Sure. <laughs> but, uh, well, um, Bill, I want to ask you, uh, since Alec has been, uh, I mean, and by the way, of course, I want to say, it is a tribute to Alec's effectiveness that it has been so repeatedly and vigorously uh, attacked, uh, but... Uh, Williamson, in this case, uh, didn't win, but Alec actually has had considerable success uh, Survi surviving, surviving. surviving and thriving. Yeah, despite it. Tell, tell us uh, some about that. Well, let me tell you just a little bit more about Alec to help uh, offer context about the survival and success of the organization. Um, Alec, as you said in the intro, is one of the organizations that most people have never heard of. It's the largest voluntary membership organization of free market-focused state legislators in the country. Uh, they come together across state lines to share ideas about what worked and what didn't work. And this is dangerous because if you know what didn't work in one state, then you <laughs> might not repeat it in another state. The opposition would rather bad ideas be repeated to slow down the opportunities for limited government advocates the world over. Um, so the reality is, over time, uh, groups began to attack ALEC because of its effectiveness. Uh, we became a stronger organization simply by speaking truth, by standing by what we believed in, by talking about the policy and leading with the model policies uh, that we believe in. In fact, on uh, a state innovation exchange call earlier this year, that state innovation state exchange... State innovation, state innovation exchange bleh, is the liberal attempt to construct a 
clearinghouse of state policy modeled on the center-right ALEC. That's correct. It's yeah. the ALEC doppelganger. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and also as an entry on influencewatch.org. Fantastic. On a call earlier this year, uh, the, the call participants from the State Innovation Exchange indicated that national polling from progressive groups had indicated that the vast majority of the American people were not against ALEC model policies or against free market policy. You hear that, folks? What they said was the vast majority of Americans believe in less government, believe in more individual liberty, believe in their ability to determine their own futures. Uh, It sounds pretty much like human nature. Uh, But what they said was an effective message at harming ALEC and harming organizations like ours in the free market movement was to talk about corruption and cronyism and champagne and caviar and so on and so forth. Note that none of those things happen at ALEC meetings, none of those foods are served at ALEC meetings, and (laughs) if only we went to really high-end resorts, that would be fantastic for me. I would love to sit by the beach, but what we do is go to conference rooms to have deep conversation about policy. You see, ALEC members are serious about being legislators. They are professional in their capacity and professional in the execution of their capacity as legislators in furtherance of the desires of the people that sent them to office. That's dangerous for a progressive elite that wants to control society from a central location. As, as, a, as a voter, you would, hi, you would want to hire, conceivably want to hire with your vote, a, a legislator open to or participating in this sort of, in this sort of, again, uh, in this sort of activity, regardless of his party. Uh, because it shows a serious commitment to public policy Correct. that oftentimes, especially, I mean, look at Congress— but also at the state and local levels, oftentimes legislators lack. Mm -hmm. So in this context, it's dangerous for uh, progressive groups to have a, a conversation or a battle in the marketplace of ideas and instead resort to a Saul Alinsky name, shame, defame style campaign. And that's what we've seen time and time again for Alec. So let me offer a few stories of Alec for you. Um, As many of you know, um, the American Legislative Exchange Council had at one point model policy on um, Castle Doctrine, Stand Your Ground. As of 2012, that's no longer the case for the organization as it recentered on on business issues alone. Uh, but upon uh, Trayvon Martin's tragic murder in Florida, the group came under attack. The group wasn't attacked directly, rather corporate members of the group were attacked. Uh, in 2012, between February 26, 2012 and April 17, 2012, up to 80 member companies uh, stopped their membership in ALEC. Uh, now, many of those have returned. Uh, many of those have continued to work with us. And the idea here is that those companies were attacked based on the public policy initiative of legislators that were brought by legislators to the organization and then uh, worked through the organization again by legislators. It's an opportunity for self-determination where legislators know what works for their communities and they move forward with those. But those might be objectionable to broader cuts of society. And so that's what happened in that case. Uh, we learned a lot from that, uh, that issue, learned a lot about how to position ourselves, how to talk about our issues, and how to stand by limited government, free market, and federalism priorities. Now let's fast forward to 2014 uh, and what I fashion the Texodus. 
these same organizations, Color of Change, Forecast the Facts, uh, Common Cause, Media Matters for America, and others attacked Google and Facebook and Yelp uh, and any tech sector Silicon Valley organizations because of their membership in ALEC. Essentially, they used the Alinsky tactic of making the enemy live up to their own definition of virtue. Let's use Google as an example, with Google or now Alphabet's motto being don't be evil and other third party groups such as the Southern Poverty Law Center labeling the vast majority of conservatives as evil. It makes it then easy for organizations like Color of Change or Common Cause or what have you to go to Google and say, Google, you say you're not evil, but you fund groups that SPLC says are evil, therefore you are evil. How dare you? So it's very, very simple logic, but it's an easy way for companies to be pressured into making decisions that are not in the best interest of their companies. Um, that's one, and I can go into that for hours and hours on end, but perhaps your viewers won't want to hear about that. I will, however, give you a few more specific examples of swarm tactics that were used against Alec during the uh, campaign to share the true Alec message. So during the Texodus, after uh, Google left, Eric Schmidt, uh, executive chairman of Google, uh, was on book tour in Washington, D.C. and announced on air on the Diane Rehm show on NPR, nationally syndicated program, uh, that he was leaving ALEC and Google would leave ALEC because of uh, allegations of climate change denial. Uh, for the record, ALEC doesn't have a position on the science of climate change. We do have strong positions against subsidies and mandates of all types, a broadly held conservative position after all. Um, including anyhow. for solar and wind. Sure. Yeah. So what we have here is Eric Schmidt making an announcement on the Diane Rehm show. That's fine. He's entitled to do so. Logical follow-up for the Diane Rehm show. We should have Alec on so that they can respond. Logical thing for us to accept. It was like, the, uh, it was like a presidential, con presidential debate. Uh, and the committee for the presidential debates, how Alec had to work back and forth with the producers to identify and work with who would be the folks on the show. After weeks of discussion, they announced who would be on the show, put it on NPR.org at, you know, 4 or 5 p.m., swarm. Wouldn't you know it, progressive activists indicated to NPR that the panel was insufficiently balanced. The panel, as it was originally planned, had Diane Rehm. It had Lisa Nelson, the CEO of the American Legislative Exchange Council. It had Grover Norquist from Americans for Tax Reform. And it had John Nichols from The Nation. Uh, so that seems pretty balanced to me. Two and two. Right. Rehm, Rehm's a liberal. The Nation is, a le is explicitly left-wing. And then two conservatives. Correct. So instead of actually doing that, we went to bed, and that's what was going to be the show the next morning. We showed up at the studio, and Miles Rappaport, the CEO of Common Cause, was now on the docket. The online swarm had indicated to NPR that this was an objectionable mix, and that it must be corrected in order to properly qualify NPR as a nonpartisan organization. Um, that's just one. The next one, uh, Tom Hamburger from the Washington Post. Uh, he is a fantastic journalist. Uh, a fair person, he does not pull punches, and he does his research better than most. Uh, incredible, incredible person. Uh, he uh, attended our uh, States and Nations Policy Summit. That's our winter meeting here in D.C. that same year, 2014. 
Um, he had unencumbered access to task force meetings, to our board dinner, and he wrote what he saw. Immediately, he was swarmed. His article was insufficiently critical of the American Legislative Exchange Council, so much so that uh, the editors of the, po the Post were called online and indicated that. And the reality was, he wrote what he saw. He saw a group, of a group of folks that may not believe the same things as he believed, engaged in robust and rigorous debate on issues they believed. That's the best of America. People getting together to think and talk and share freely, and that shouldn't be shut down. But in every single avenue, through every single approach possible, these, this cabal, it's not all, but these groups of progressive activists aim to shut down debate instead of live the best ideals of American public policy. The strangling uh, funds is one crucial thing here. Uh, we mentioned the, the, stop, uh, or the stop rush uh, effort some years back. Uh, and that was launched, again, with a, a tiny little cabal of folks, uh, about a dozen guys living in mommy's basement, creating uh, hundreds of fake accounts to harass advertisers on stations that played Rush Limbaugh. And it was often a hilarious thing because it'd be somebody from California writing uh, a station in Mississippi saying, I'm never going to shop at your store again, uh, which was probably not much of a threat. But anyway, the point was to shut down the advertisers for that. Um, other conservatives have, uh, who have, you know, uh, make money off of selling things online that are branded to them uh, attacked Breitbart News advertisers and, and other uh, conservative websites. Again, they want to go after the, the, the business angle to this is often underappreciated. Mm -hmm. um, going after businesses that in some way are making it possible for conservatives to have plat their own platforms um, and shutting that down and strangling it. Uh, is is critical. So uh, your work with the corporations is terribly important, I think. Sure, and let me let me take that in a different direction for a moment. Uh, as I'm as we've all discussed earlier, the group Citizen Engagement Lab, and then as we've also discussed, the group Color of Change. Uh, Color of Change is particularly focused on uh, attacking companies and creating brand liabilities uh, for them. Uh, indeed, they were one of the principal groups that attacked ALEC and ALEC member companies in 2012 uh, through 2014 or 15. Uh, but since then, they've bas basically been taking a victory lap with their executive director, Rashad Robinson. Uh, and as I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation today, uh, they fine-tuned their work against ALEC and used that model to pressure any other type of organization or company uh, the country over. Um, so let me start, actually, by asking if we could roll a quick audio clip of an advertisement sent to companies uh, by Color of Change. CVS. When you hear that company's name, do you think of the law that protected Trayvon Martin's killer? Do you think of laws that suppress the black vote? You should. Major companies are funding the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC for short which is attacking the rights of African-Americans, Latinos, and workers across the country. Tell CVS to stop funding ALEC. Text bad laws to 30644 to get involved. Startling, isn't it? Now, what I'll tell you is there's not an ounce of truth in that advertisement. I'll also tell you this might be the first time that advertisement has ever been aired. Because what Color of Change did to hundreds of companies is send them a letter 
simply saying, withdraw now or we air this ad. It was blackmail. It was backroom blackmail, focused on advertisers and focused on creating brand liability for companies that were working to exact public policy outcomes that advanced business. Businesses pay taxes, businesses employ people. Without businesses' existence, there is no America. These ads were used to create intentional harm against folks that were just doing their jobs. Now, that takes it one step further. That's one example of what Color of Change did, and that's an example that they used in repetition to great effect with other organizations. Uh, Color of Change did the same exact thing to Google around uh, sponsoring the Republican National Convention uh, last time around in 2016. Uh, and don't take it from me. Uh, take it from them. I encourage all of your viewers to go to the1a.org. That's the replacement NPR show uh, that filled the Diane Rehm time slot upon her retirement. Uh, on April 20th of 2017, Rashad Robinson was taking a victory lap after pressuring News Corporation to fire Bill O'Reilly and talked specifically about ALEC and their pressure campaign and how they uh, used that exact strategy against companies for PAC contributions, for their involvement with specific political parties, for their investment in C3s, C4s, and any sort of political or public policy group. It's about an hour-long victory lap explaining not only the art but the science of exactly what they did, and it's available for anyone to listen to at NPR.org. Yeah, and Mike, I want to I want to add or, or adjust my my one of my last remarks. Part of the strategy here is to strangle all revenue sources for conservative platforms. But in the bigger picture, this is the left trying to push the entire business sector out of the politics, isn't it? Right. And you, a lot of these groups that we've discussed, uh, Center for Media and Democracy, I believe Color of Change, uh, they get funding from the major labor unions. Uh, specifically the major public sector labor unions, uh, American Federation of State Council, State, County, and Municipal Employees, Service Employees International Union, uh, they would like nothing more than to have the situation they have in California where the, uh, the California Teachers Association, the Public Employee Labor Union, basically runs the state. And they want that in, you know, and they would like nothing more than to have that in, in every state in the union by keeping business quiet, by keeping uh, business, by keeping free market advocates who may not necessarily be uh, working for the business community, so to speak, by keeping them quiet and keeping them off major platforms. And then having the, uh, the conservative right, rec you know, the faces of the conservative right be crazy people or people who are basically liberals but want liberalism slower. Yeah, and I would just throw in quickly, since the left loves campaign finance statistics, that seven of the 10 largest organizational donors in politics, according to the left-wing Center for Responsive Politics, which does a good job of tracking this, seven of the top 10 biggest donors organizationally are unions, including the number one. And those unions typically give, in a split of Democrat to Republican, about 97 percent or more to Democrats, whereas what you find in businesses, of course, is that typically businesses are more like 60-40 on the Republican side. 
and actually in that top 10, there's the uh, Renaissance Technologies uh, hedge fund, which is most famous for its right-wing donor, Robert Mercer. Uh, but actually, the firm as a whole, if you take all its employees right, there's an, together— There's another, another, another one of its— uh, of its principal, principles, of its principles yeah. whose name escapes me, unfortunately, uh, is actually co- is a comparable donor in scale, at least to political campaigns that are tracked by Open Secrets, and he's also a Democrat. Yeah, so it actually, the, the notorious right-wing company actually gives more to Democrats than Republicans. It gives, a, it gives almost exactly the same, I believe. Yeah, it's, it's, 50 to, it's somewhere in the 50s or to 60%. But yes, the biz, business, if you shoved business out uh, entirely out of politics uh, and left only union donors, you would have, again, a highly skewed, uh, a highly skewed politics like now, California. Now think about this for a moment, just from a historical context, because of the messages offered by labor unions versus the, the narrative around business. No longer are the days of robber barons. Uh, no longer are the days of Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. Uh, today, companies do well when their communities do well, and companies do well when their employees do well. It is in the interest of a company to do good things with its products, for its customers, and with its employee base and producer base. Uh, there isn't some oppressive regime leading companies as they were at the turn of two centuries ago. Uh, today, the narrative of labor versus business is a narrative from 1897. It's not a narrative from 2018. Yep. Well, now, uh, another corporation that got attacked in a swarm, uh, but like Alec, has not disappeared, uh, but prospered, would be Chick-fil-A, wouldn't it, Mike? Right. Uh, In the earlier part of this decade, I think 2012, 2013, uh, before the decision that mandated that uh, same-sex marriage be recognized by every state, the uh, family, the Kathy family, which owns Chick-fil-A, uh, are, I believe they're evangelical Christians? Yes. They're uh, mm-hmm. evangelical Protestants, very committed to their religion. That's why most, almost all Chick-fil-A's don't open on Sundays. Uh, and they had given funds to organizations that uh, opposed the recognition of same-sex marriage. Uh, the Human Rights Campaign, the largest uh, LGBT, right, LGBT advocacy group in the country, uh, came after them with a very severe swarm, uh, demanded boycotts. Today, five years later, or six years later, uh, the com- the Chick Fil A has a pretty high net favorability. Has one of the highest net favorability ratings in the fast food industry among millennials, who are, if you believe any of the opinion polling, uh, the most pro same sex marriage uh, demographic group. Um. This is, and again, although as a public policy issue, it's off the table uh, by the Supreme Court, as a belief, the Cathy's never recanted. Yes. So, Chick-fil-A's still don't open on Sundays. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, uh, Bill, maybe that's, maybe that's our, our final wrap-up point, that you can be swarmed by the left and still survive. Mm-hmm. And to, to put a finer point on it as well, you will never be wrong for standing up for what you believe in. It is important to stand on principle, whatever that principle may be, and speak loudly and support it ardently. Uh, Because the only person who will silence you is yourself if you allow yourself to be silenced. 
That sounds like a very all-American point for us to end on. Uh, that is our show for this week. Uh, thank you to Bill Meierling of ALEC for joining us. If you're listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher, uh, know that we broadcast a live video version of this podcast at 10 a.m. on Thursdays on Facebook Live and YouTube. You can find our pages by searching Capital Research Center. And if you're watching the video version, uh, we want to encourage you to subscribe to the audio on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next week.